Hi everyone and welcome to the TITBS Book Club. Uh, my name is Dr. Gavin Krishnamurti. I'm here with Dr. Kate Nair. Hi Kate. Hello Gavin. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. That's um, good. <laughs> uh, we're reviewing um, the book Teaching the Child on the Trauma Continuum by Betsy D. Thierry. Uh, and we're looking at chapter eight, which is an exciting chapter because it's about classroom strategies to reduce stress. Lots of practical suggestions. What do you think of the chapter, Kay? Uh, um, yes, it's a great chapter. It's actually got really, really good practical suggestions for teachers, which are really, you know, clearly explained. It's very readable, this chapter. I think I think teachers would find it really useful. Um, so there was a quote you wanted to start on, Kay, that Betsy talks about. Yep, yep. On the first page, she says she's talking about how teachers don't need to be experts in trauma. And she says they need to teach with an awareness that provides support and understanding for all children, which I thought was was um, a really good affirmation for teachers in that, no, you don't need to be an expert in, in trauma or a psychologist or a psychotherapist as long as you teach with awareness. Um, and she goes on to reinforce that, it, that a teacher with an understanding of trauma and the impact that it has, that in itself is a positive strategy. And I mm. thought that was really good. Mm. I think when we talk about this stuff, people feel quite overwhelmed with information. And really what we try to reinforce through the program is you don't have to be an expert, just like Betsy is saying, um, that you've just got to hold it in mind um, and have it uh, in the forefront of your mind so that when you're thinking about these kids, that sometimes some of the kind of ways you think about them is contrary to some of the other children in the classroom. And that's all it is, that it's informing the way you think about these kids. And she's done a great job of just um, highlighting some of the key kind of learnings um, from that kind of theory, the psychology side of things. Um, and you wanted me to talk about maybe a couple of those, Kay, is that right? Yeah, um, Gavin, when I was reading it, um, she, she lists key facts for teachers, to re for teachers to remember when they're supporting children with trauma. And one of the things, one of the um, notions that she mentions is this, the notion of shame. Mm. And I think um, from a classroom teacher's point of view, I know for myself that the notion of shame and how my behaviour as a teacher impacted the, the feeling of shame and blaming of the child, I I really wasn't aware of. And I, I think it would be really useful for those people listening if we could sort of um, discuss, if you could discuss shame within the context of trauma and why it's so important for teachers to be aware of the role that their own behaviour plays, you know, with the child and their shame. Yeah, sure. Now... I have to warn you, I, I did do my PhD on shame, so <laughs> spend the rest of the podcast talking about That's okay, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you a quick run through. So when we think about shame, um, shame sits in this kind of family of what we call self-conscious emotions. So when children first start to become um, aware of, uh, you know, themselves being different to other people, this need to kind of belong and fit in, this idea of kind of social norms, when they're slowly starting to realize that perhaps 
the way, you know, that kind of unconditional acceptance you get within the family isn't what you get outside. Um, that's the emergence of kind of self-conscious emotion. And shame's an interesting one. And shame often gets confused with guilt. And I may have talked about this before, but when we think about guilt, um, we kind of typically associated with the kind of thoughts relating to uh, having done a bad thing, you know, having done the bad, uh, a wrong thing by someone you love uh, um, or someone you care about or someone you're kind of next to. Um, so the part of the kind of deal with shame, having done something bad, is that you can make repairs for it. Um, which is so important in relationships that it's not that you're the bad person, it's that you've done the wrong thing and that you can make amends that there's room for forgiveness. When we think about shame, shame, instead of it being I have done the wrong thing like in guilt, shame is about um, I am bad. You know, I am bad as opposed to I've done something bad. And so when you think of being, you know, someone who thinks of themselves as bad, there's no room to make reparations because it feels as though anything else that they do won't necessarily change how people see them or perceive them. They're somehow inherently flawed or damaged. Now, that is incredibly pertinent for um, adults, but also children who've been traumatized, um, that they're so vulnerable um, to having those kind of feelings reinforced that any kind of failure, any kind of perception of uh, disapproval um, feels like it's confirming their sense of shame. Now, um, in, in any kind of relationships, particularly with someone who um, is what we call shame prone, who's prone to experiencing lots of levels of shame, um, what's important is to start with lots of reassurance, um, positive affirmations, um, not that that would automatically fix their perceptions of um, any rejection or disapproval, but what it does is it gets, sets you off to a good start, a safe start in their eyes um, to not feeling as though uh, they're being rejected, not feeling as though there's abandonment coming, not feeling as though you um, see uh, them as being inferior or negative in some ways. Um, and so... You know, when we go, when typically I see this with kids in school settings where um, teachers go in to set limits and consequences before they've actually put in some effort to build a relationship with the child. Um, and typically when that happens, the shame is triggered off. And for some children, they dissociate and kind of withdraw within themselves and they completely shut down, don't participate, ask questions. Or other children, they kick off, they get really angry, they become very sensitive to things. Um, part of this depends on what the teacher is doing and how they're saying, but the other part of it is how the child's feeling themselves. So if they are having things around in their home or their life that's made them at a heightened level of stress, they're more vulnerable to experiencing shame. Um, does that sort of make sense, Kate? Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no worries. Um, so the other kind of two points I'd probably make um, is Betsy talks about the need to model self-regulation. So important. I've talked, we've talked about this before. Um, teachers make really wise decisions if they can stay calm. Um, and, you know, that's easier said than done when you have a really challenging student in mind. Um, the key is... Um, I think it was something you said earlier, Kay, is, you know, shame begets shame. So if mm. you feel as though the child's purposely, intentionally attacking you, if you feel as though it feels sort of personal and it kind of makes you feel ashamed, 
um, shame leads to anger and anger leads to kind of punishment and, um, you know, kind of ruptures in your relationship. So um, really holding in mind, um, you know, the need to stay calm, um, the need to have kind of structures and processes within the school environment to help you do that and to know that you'll be supported in whatever kind of choice you make. And the only other point I'd make, there are a few other points there, is the, uh, this idea of plasticity. Um, so what we've come to learn about the brain is that it's very plastic um, and that it can change over time and that it, um, you know, the, the rate at which it changes kind of slows down as you grow older, but there's always room for hope. There's always room for change. Uh, and the younger the child is, your efforts do not go um, without impact. Um, so that kind of investment um, in the child makes a huge difference in their kind of neural functioning, brain functioning across time and um, down the track into adulthood. Um, what did you think of the other section, Kay, where they talk about strategies for children showing kind of signs of trauma? Was there anything that stood out for you as being useful? Um, let me this see. Is page 104, sorry. Page 104, okay. Um, I always find the PACE um, acronym and the associated little behaviours with that um, very useful because mm. it, it sort of... Um, comes from the perspective, doesn't it, that this is you, this is about your attitude, you know, yeah. um, which I think, you know, having a playful, accepting, curious and empathetic attitude is um, a very good, a very good reminder. And what I really like about the conversation around pace, so playful, accepting, curious and empathetic, is listening and, and learning and, and, trying not to take you know yourself or things around you too serious you know and um having that sort of playful sort of um behavior and yeah i think yeah. i think it's good to remember because you can as you said give in get very overwhelmed and as the teacher and and feel quite helpless and um powerless but when you remember that you know there is very much a hope and you make quite a considerable amount of difference it yeah. um, helps your attitude you know to be much more positive i love pace uh, and pace the acronym playful acceptance curiosity and empathy comes from the work of dr daniel hughes um who's a psychotherapist from the u.s who works with um children of experienced trauma he has a program called dyadic developmental psychotherapy ddp um that he, people get trained in Pace to me captures what teachers who do excellent classroom management um, do really well. You know, the, the piece I would like to just talk about is that playfulness, Kay, that you talked mm -hmm. about. And I find teachers struggle with this because there's a sense that you need to hold authority, um, be almost authoritarian. You know, there's this sort of picture of what a teacher needs to be in some way. With a very serious oh, face. Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I think for teachers who don't take themselves too seriously, when they can kind of laugh at themselves, it actually communicates a lot of confidence um, mm. to the kids. And it actually, to, to traumatize kids, it actually kind of says, hey, I can drop down to your level, I can laugh at myself, but I can, you know, take charge when I need to. Um, and the teachers who can, you know, what we call one down and one up, you know, one down is when, you know, you step down from that place of authority and join the kids, but 
uh, one up is when you you know step up and take charge when it's appropriate and this yeah. is what we talk about in the program as well don't we Kai this um, kind of idea of needing to follow the child you know students lead you know thinking about what they need following their lead not necessarily think that they're being manipulative or whatnot and taking charge only when necessary and so the more you can do of that um, the more um, successful you will be in classroom management, I think. Um, and then there's the language itself that you use with the kids. Did you have any thoughts about that, Kay? Yeah, I think the, there's, um, there's a really good book called The Power of Our Words and um, that's written by Denton and it's a really, really useful text. A lot of the schools that we work with have actually purchased it and it gives really excellent examples of the actual language that we use and so when we're following their lead that you know we're using language that's reminding language and reinforcing language and um, that sort of language is brief language and praise and descriptive type of language so all of those sorts of things so we we try and follow their lead as much as possible and then when we do need to take charge, we take charge and we tend to use specific redirecting language, which um, I guess, as you said, Gavind, um, your effective teachers naturally do this anyway. But so the redirecting language becomes quite specific and, and I guess, direct statements, you know, like clean up your work area and um, more like, you know, I'm taking charge, you need to do it, you need to do it now, but I'm still being firm and fair and I'm still regulating my behaviour and being very sort of, you know, underlying calmness but firm and fair. So, yeah, it's all about um, the, the types of language that we use to, to um, support the situation of either following their lead when we're reminding and and reinforcing or whether we're taking charge and we're sort of redirecting to make sure that we keep the situation under control and mm. everybody's safe. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, I kind of think of it as two pieces. You know, there is the what you say, which is the language that you're talking about, isn't it, Kay? About, yes. Yeah, the actual so. words that we use, yeah. That's right. And then there's how you say it, isn't it? The, the non-verbals, the body language, the tone of voice, the, the pace, you know, the kind of attitude that you kind of communicate in saying that. And really that comes from getting that real-time feedback you know, about how you're actually doing a lot of these things because a lot of it is really subtle and a lot of it kind of needs to match, um, you know, where the student's at and also how the teacher's feeling. So getting that kind of in-person feedback, there's really no other substitute for that in terms of getting some of this stuff right. Um, and a big part of that is the right mindset about going into this um, that's not punitive and is looking to kind of learn from... I learn about how best to support um, the student. Mm. Now, um, from page 111, there's a whole slew of strategies. Um, so people listening um, would strongly recommend kind of purchasing the book and having a read through chapter. It's really useful, practical kind of stuff. Okay, did you want to pick maybe two or three out of these um, strategies just to kind of reflect on what's kind of worked for you and what you found quite useful with kids? Yeah, I think um, in the strategies there for children who are on the lower end of the trauma continuum and are showing signs of stress, I there's, there's a lot of strategies which I find really quite um, 
reassuring because there's a lot of strategies there that I think teachers in general would um, would you know have as part of their daily practice, which is 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 really good. So I think one of the things that sometimes we can overlook is the point here where Betsy reminds us that it's essential to reflect on the seating plan of your classroom mm. and to ensure that these children have an easy escape route. Mm. Because I think naturally sometimes we think uh, the closer to us, the better, and often these children's desks are moved close to the teacher's desk, which in itself isn't a bad strategy, except that the teacher's desk could be at the far front of the room mm. and the escape route may be um, fraught with um, children and objects and other things. So I think we just really need to stop and think about that. The other thing most children, she says here, most children find a visual timetable helpful. And in a lot of my work in behaviour and especially with children with autism spectrum disorder, visual timetables are very, very helpful for them because they're visual learners. But equally, like any strategies that we put into place for children with exceptionalities, be that trauma or um, special needs of any sort, if it's helpful to that student, it's helpful to all students and all students love predictability and routine and a visual timetable so they know what's coming next. But that's something that a lot of teachers use very well and they're already doing it. And I thought it was good. Um, that was, yeah, it was good to know mm. that, it, you know, it's helpful as well. Yeah. I mean, the way uh, I think there are two aspects here. It's about what you do again and how you do it. How you do it and um, how you use it effectively. Yeah, that's right. In terms of what you do, I know um, we talk about in the program, Dr. Bruce Perry in his program, uh, the NMP program, he talks a lot about the different parts of the brain and the different kind of regulatory kind of activities that you can do to affect different kind of parts of the brain. And the lower level ones, you know, things like massage and, you know, playing with Play-Doh, things like that, things that you might even think fairly younger kind of kids should do. Uh, you know, there's lots of evidence that those repetitive kind of soothing sensory activities are really powerful in helping uh. regulate. And the other really nice strategy, and she, there are a few strategies that fall under this, is this idea of, you know, we talk a lot about self-regulation and then we talk about co-regulation when we were talking about attachment where someone's helping a child regulate. But we also, the, just as important is what we call auto-regulation. Auto-regulation is those daily routines and schedules and daily kind of things that we do every day in the classroom that helps the child feel as though things are predictable, helps the child kind of regulate how they feel through the day. Um, those kind of routines and rituals are incredibly important uh, in helping them regulate. Um, in terms of how to actually use the strategies, I mean, one of the kind of my bugbears with kind of giving people lots of strategies is that um, they often take a really scattergun approach with it, where they kind of, you know, throw lots of strategies at the child to see which one sticks. Yeah. What would be rather, what would be better, and this is something that we advocate for the program, obviously, is to have a bit of a thought-out strategy, that any strategy that you use comes from a hypothesis about why the behavior is happening um, and why the kind of strategy is actually going to help. If you have those hypotheses, then, you know, you're not just scrambling and using everything that you can, um, but you're actually building understanding, you're building a bit of kind of uh, 
a, a strategic approach to being able to support the child um, and student without it just being these random sort of strategies, which is really important, I think, yeah. Now, yeah. I think you touched on this, Kay. The last point that Betsy kind of makes is about the group dynamic. Um, and someone we work with, um, Elizabeth, I'm sure this is not her quote, but the quote that often gets used is, you know, what is fair is not everyone getting the same thing. Um, what is fair is everyone getting what they need. Um, and uh -huh. I've heard lots of teachers use this. And some kids, you know, if they're autistic, need a little more of something compared to kids who've been traumatized and need, you know, a little more time to calm down or whatever it is. Um, and building, you know, having that philosophy is the foundation of being able to be inclusive, really, isn't it, with the kids. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about that, Karen? No, not really. I mean, I just, I think um, the difficulty with thinking like that for some teachers comes from the fact that they look at um, behaviour and learning, academic learning, as two separate things. Mm. And I think, you know, that, that sometimes that, that attitude and that, that, sort of perception makes it quite difficult. I was talking to some um, USQ students about that today in our behaviour class and I said to them, you know, when we look at functional behavioural assessment, it's an assessment tool mm. where we assess the behaviour so that we can plan and teach the skills that the child needs. It's the same as if a child is not learning their sight words, for example. We mm. test their sight words. We record how, you know, we record how many they know. We have a plan for how we're going to teach them the words that they don't know. And we're doing exactly the same thing for behaviour. And although that sounds obvious to many, it's mm. not obvious when you say we're doing, we're learning how to do an FBA for behaviour. Mm. There's still that compartmentalisation in people's minds that behaviour is something the child should just know. Mm. I'm here to teach them how to learn and do their academic um, learning. Yeah. The behaviour, should they should come to school behaving. Yeah. Now, if it's looked at as a skill deficit, yeah. the same as anything else, then... Yeah. It needs to be observed, it needs to be assessed, we need to put a plan in place so that we can, you know, support the child in their learning how to behave. So it's really, which is, I guess, the um, probably one of the underlying um, motivations for changing in Queensland school-wide positive behaviour support to be called positive behaviour for learning. Mm. as they do in the southern states, to get that word learning in to try and marry those together. I think that's yeah. um, it's quite a, a, a huge leap of thinking for a lot of people. So Yeah. I just want to mention that we recently just finished a round of doing our workshop and I, I had someone come to me in the end and talk to me about how, you know, she kind of gets the need to be inclusive and whatnot. And she was saying, but you know, she was in a classroom where the other children were actually you know, not feeling particularly safe, feeling particularly kind of disrupted, were um, really being disadvantaged by the child being in class. And I just want to bring this up because I think sometimes we, we can come off sounding really black and white about this. And, you know, for me, the baseline and the absolute non-negotiable is safety. Safety for the teacher, safety for the uh, everyone involved in the class, including the child who's traumatized. If that is compromised, then we need to seriously think about 
how long the child can be in the classroom, how long they can be in the school kind of environment, what are the other supports we can put in place and that type of thing. Mm. Um, and I think it's not so much that we keep the contact child in class no matter what, you know, that's no. kind of like uh, idea here. The idea is how can we put in everything that we can um, to help the child before it actually gets to them um, needing to have reduced hours and needing to be in other parts of the school or whatnot. And I mm. think it's important for people to understand that um, because what we often see is that those sort of big interventions get put in place where the child gets sent out a class and that type of thing without there being a sufficient plan for things to come before that. Um, that's great. All right, Kate, was there a quote you wanted to finish on? Um, to tell you the truth, I'm just having a quick look. Well, I've got one. It's oh, good for you. Long. Yep. It's a uh, paragraph. I might go ahead and read it. Yeah, that'd um, be great. So it's on page 106. She says, Patience and warmth speak volumes to a child who's been undernatured and can heal a traumatized child so that they feel they can begin to take risks to learn or try something new. Patience can never be underestimated as a vital strategy to support the troubled child. When things get busy and challenging, patience can still be found by utilizing the skill of empathy, standing in their shoes, and picturing the internal pain that they're in. I really like that one. Uh, um, and we might end on that, and we're right on time. Um, did you have any other comments or things to say, Kay? No, I think that, yeah, I think that says it all, other than just to encourage people to have a look at this very useful chapter. Yes, definitely check it out. If you want to purchase the book, even if it's just for this chapter, I think it's well worthwhile. Uh -huh. um, thank you, Kate. Thank you, Gavind. Oh, that's my stop button. Right. <laughs> okay, thanks. See you, next time. See you later. Bye.